Episode 5 of The Flaming Jewel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, visit LibriVox.org. The Flaming Jewel by Robert W. Chambers. Episode 5. Drowned Valley. 1. The soft bluish forest shadows had lengthened, and the barred sunrays filtered through were tinged with a rosy hue before Jake Clune, the hooch runner, and Earl Leverett, trap thief, came to Drowned Valley. They were still a mile distant from the most southern edge of the vast desolation, but already tamaracks appeared in the beauty of their burnt gold. Little pools glimmered here and there, patches of amber sphagnum and crimson pitcher plants became frequent, and once or twice Clune's big boots broke through the crust of fallen leaves, soaking him to the ankles with black silt. Leverett, always a coward, had pursued his devious and larcenous ways through the world, always in deadly fear of sinkholes. His movements and paths were those of a weasel, preferring always solid ground, but he lacked the courage of that sinuous little beast, though he possessed all of its ferocity and far more cunning. Now, trotting lightly and tirelessly in the broad and careless spore of Jake Clune, his narrow pointed head alert, and every fear-sharpened instinct tensely observant, the trap-thief continued to meditate murder. Like all cowards, he had always been inclined to bold and ruthless action, but inclination was all that ever had happened. Yet, even in his piteous misdemeanors, he slunk through life in terror of that strength which never hesitates at violence. In his petty pilfering he died a hundred deaths for every trapped mink or otter he filched. He heard the game protector's head as he slunk from the bagged trout brook or crawled away, belly dragging and pockets full of snared grouse. Always he dreamed of the day when, through some sudden bold and savage stroke, he could deliver himself from a life of fear and live in a city, grossly replete with the pleasures of satiation, never again to see a tree or a lonely lake or a blue peak which always he had hated because they seemed to spy on him from their sky-blue heights. They were spying on him now as he moved lightly, furtively at Jake Clune's heels, meditating once more that swift, bold stroke which forever would free him from all care and fear. He looked at the back of Clune's massive head. One shot would blow that skull into fragments, he thought, shivering. One shot from behind, and twenty thousand dollars, or, if it proved a better deal, the contents of the packet— for, if Quintana's bribery had dazzled them, what effect might the contents of that secret packet have if revealed? Always in his mean and busy brain he was trying to figure to himself what that packet must contain, and to make the bribe worth while, Leverett had concluded that only a solid packet of thousand-dollar bills could account for the twenty thousand offered. There might easily be half a million in bills pressed together in that heavy, flat packet. Bills were absolutely safe plunder. But Clune had turned a deft ear to his suggestion. Clune, who never entertained ambition beyond his hooch rake-off, whose miserable imagination stopped at a wretched percentage satisfied. One shot, there was the back of Clune's bushy head, one shot, and fear which had shattered him from birth was at an end forever. Ended, too, privation, the bitter rigor of black winters, scorching days, bodily squalor, ills that such as he had endured in a wilderness where, like other creatures of the wild, men stricken dead or reconvened by chance alone. A single shot would settle all problems for him, but if he missed, at the mere idea he trembled as he trotted on, trying to tell himself that he couldn't miss. No use. 
Always the coward's if blocked him, and the coward's rage, fiercest of all fury, ravaged him, almost crazing him with his own impotence. Tamraks, smagnum, crimson pitcher plants grew thicker, wet woods set with little black pools stretched away on every side. It was still nearly a mile from Drowned Valley when Jake Kloon halted in his tracks and seated himself on a narrow ridge of hard ground, and Leverett came lightly up and, after nosing the whole vicinity, sat down cautiously where Kloon would have turned partly around to look at him. "'Where the hell do we meet up with Quintana?' growled Kloon, tearing a mouthful from a gnawed tobacco plug and shoving the remainder deep into his trouser pocket. "'We gotta travel a piece yet. Say, Jake,' Be you a man or be you a poor dumb critter what ain't got no spunk? Clune chewed his cud, turning and glancing at him. Then he spat as answer. If you got the spunk of a chipmunk, you and me take a peek at that there packet. I bet you a thousand dollar bills, more than a billion million dollars likely. Clune's dogged silence continued. Leverett licked his dry lips. His rifle lay on his knees. Almost imperceptibly he moved it. Moved it again froze stiff as Clune spat. Then, by infinitesimal degrees, continued to edge the muzzle towards Clune. Jake? Ah, shut your head, grumbled Clune disdainfully. You allus was a dirty rat, you sneakin' trap robber. Enough's enough. I ain't got no use for no billion-million-dollar bills. Ten thousand by me all I calculate I need till I'm planted. But you're like a hog. You ain't never had enough, nothing. You won't never get enough, either. Not if you was God Almighty, you wouldn't. Ten thousand dollars ain't nothing to a billion million, Jake. Clune squirted a stream of tobacco at a pitcher plant and filled the cup. Diverted and gratified by the accuracy of his aim, he took other shots at intervals. Leverett moved the muzzle of his rifle a hair's width to the left, shivered, moved it again. Under his soggy, sun-tanned skin, a pallor made his visage sickly gray. Jake? No answer. Say Jake. No notice. Jake, I want to take a peek at them bills. Merely another stream of tobacco soiling the crimson pitcher. I'm... I'm disparate. I gotta take a peek. I gotta. I gotta. Something in Leverett's unsteady voice made Clune turn his head. You gall-ram fool, he said. What you doing with your... The loud detonation of the rifle punctuated Clune's inquiry with a final period. The big, soft-nosed bullet struck him full in the face, spilling his brains and part of his skull down his back, and knocking him flat as though he had been clubbed. Leverett, stunned, sat staring, motionless, clutching the rifle from the muzzle, of which the delicate stain of vapor floated and disappeared through a rosy bar of sunshine. In the intense stillness of the place, suddenly the dead man made a sound, and the trap-robber nearly fainted but it was only air escaping from the slowly collapsing lungs, and Leverett, ashy pale, shaking, got to his feet, leaned heavily against an oak tree, his eyes never stirring from the sprawling thing on the ground. If it were a minute or a year he stood there, he could never have reckoned the space of time. The sun's level rays glimmered ruddy through the woods. A green fly appeared, buzzing about the dead man. Another zigzagged through the sunshine, lacing it with a streak of greenish fire. Others appeared, whirling, gyrating, filling the silence with their humming, and still Leverett dared not budge, dared not search the dead and take from it that for which the dead had died. A little breeze came by and stirred the bushy hair on Clune's head, and fluttered the ferns around him where he lay. 
Two delicate pure white butterflies, rare survivors of a native species driven from civilization into the wilderness by the advent of the foreign white, fluttered in airy play over the dead man, drifting away into the woodland at times, yet always returning to wage a fairy combat above the heap of soiled clothing which had once been a man. Then, near in the ferns, the withering fronds twitched, and a red squirrel sprung his startling alarm, squeaking, squealing, chattering his opinion of murder, and Leverett, shaking with the shock, wiped icy sweat from his face, laid aside his rifle, and took his first step toward the dead man. But, as he bent over, he changed his mind, turned, reeling around, then crept slowly out among the pitcher plants, searching about him as though sniffing. In a few minutes he discovered what he was looking for, took his bearings, carefully picked his way back over a leafy crust that trembled under his cautious tread. He bent over Clune, and from the left inside coat pocket he drew the packet and placed it inside his own flannel shirt. Then, turning his back to the dead, he squatted down and clutched Clune's burly ankles as a man grasped the handles of a wheelbarrow to draw it after him. Dragging, rolling, bumping over roots, Jake Clune took his last trail through the wilderness, leaving a redder path than was left by the setting sun through fern and moss and waste of pitcher plants. Always as Leverett crept on, pulling the dead behind him, the floor of the woods trembled slightly, and a black ooze wet the crust of withered leaves. At the quaking edge of a little pool of water, Leverett halted. The water was dark, but scarcely an inch deep over its black bed of silt. Beside this sinkhole, the trapped thief dropped Clune. He drew his hunting knife and cut a tall, slim swamp maple. The sapling was about twenty feet in height. Leverett thrust the butt of it into the pool. Without any effort, he pushed the entire sapling out of sight into the depthless silt. He had to maneuver very gingerly to drop Clune into the pool and keep out of it himself. Finally, he managed it. To his alarm, Clune did not sink far. He cut another sapling and pushed the body until only the shoes were visible above the silt. These, however, were very slowly sinking now. Bubbles rose, dully iridescent floated, broke. Strings of blood hung suspended in the clouding water. Leverett went back to the little ridge and covered Leverett went back to the little ridge and covered with dead leaves the spot where Clune had lain. There were broken ferns, but he could not straighten them and there lay Clune's rifle. For a while he hesitated, his habits of economy being ingrained, but he remembered the packet in his shirt, and he carried the rifle to the little pool and shoved it, muzzle first, driving it downward out of sight. As he rose from the pool's edge, somebody laid a hand on his shoulder. That was the most real death that Leverett ever had died. 2. A coward dies many times before old man death really gets him. The swimming minutes passed, his mind ceased to live for a space. Then, as through the swirling waters of the last dark whirlpool, a dull roar of returning consciousness filled his being. Somebody was shaking him, shouting at him. Suddenly, instinct resumed its function. He struggled madly to get away from the edge of the sinkhole, fought his way blindly through the tangled undergrowth toward the hard ridge. No human power could have blocked the frantic creature thrashing toward solid ground. But there Quintana held him in his wiry grip. Fool, mule, crazy fellow. What do you, eh? For why you make jump like rabbits, eh? You expect Quintana, yes? Alors? Leverett, in a state of collapse, sagged back against an oak tree. Quintana's nervous grasp fell from his arms, and they swung dangling. What you do by that pond hole, eh? I come and touch you, and my God, one would think I have stabbed you. Such a ass. 
The sickly greenish hue changed in Leverett's face as the warmer tide stirred from its stagnation. He lifted his head and tried to look at Quintana. "'Where Jake Clune?' demanded the latter. At that, the weasel wits from the trap harbor awoke to the instant crisis. Blood and pulse began to jump. He passed one dirty hand over his mouth to mask any twitching. "'Where's my packet, eh?' inquired Quintana. "'Jake's got it,' Leverett's voice was growing stronger. His small eyes switched for an instant towards his rifle, where it stood against the tree. His small eyes switched for an instant toward his rifle, where it stood against the tree behind Quintana. "'Where is he, then, this Jake?' repeated Quintana impatiently. "'He got bogged.' "'Bogged? What is that, then?' "'He got into a sinkhole.' "'What?' "'That's all I know,' said Leverett solemnly. "'He and me was traveling, hell-bent on meeting up with you. "'Jake, he was for a shortcut to Drown Valley. "'But no,' says I, "'give me a good hard ridge and a long detour "'when there's sinkholes in the woods.' "'What is that you talk to me?' asked Quintana, "'whose perplexed features began to darken. "'Where is it, my packet?' "'I'm telling you, ain't I?' retorted the other, "'raising a voice now shrill with the strain "'of this new crisis rushing so unexpectedly upon him.' I heard Jake give a holler. What the hell's the trouble, I yells. He lets out a bell. Save me, he screeches. I'm, in a sui- I'm into a sinkhole. The quicksand's got me, says he. So I dropped my rifle, I did. And there she stands against that birch sapling, and I run down into them pitcher plants. Where be ye, I yells. Then I listen, don't hear nothing, only a kind of wallerin' noise and a slobber like he was gulpin' mud. Then I followed them sounds, and I come up out by that sinkhole. The water was a-shakin' all over it, but Jake, he had went down plumb out of sight. T'was no use. I cut a sapling and poked down. I was sick and scared-like, so when you come up over the moss, not makin' no noise, and grab me, God, I guess you'd jump, too. Quintana's dark, tense face was expressionless when Leverett ventured to look at him. Like most liars, he realized the advisability of looking his victim straight in the eyes. This he managed to accomplish, sustaining the cold intensity of Quintana's gaze as long as he deemed it necessary. Then he started towards his rifle. Quintana blocked his way. Where my packet? Gall ram it, I told you. Jake had it in his pocket. My packet? Yes, yourn. My packet. It's down in the sinkhole. You think I'm lying, blustered Leverett? Trying to move round Quintana's extended arm, the arm swerved and clutched him by the collar of his flannel shirt. Wait, my friend, said Quintana in a soft voice. You shall explain to me some things before you go. Explain what, you gall-dinged? Quintana shook him into speechlessness. Listen, my friend, he continued with a terrifying smile. I must ask you what it was, that gunshot which I hear while I was waiting down valley, eh? Who fired a gun? I ain't heard no gun, replied Leverett in a strangled voice. You did not shoot, no? No, damn it all. And Jake, he did not fire? No, I tell you. Ah, someone lies. It's not me, my friend. No, let us examine your rifle. Leverett made a rush for the gun. Quintana slung him back against the oak tree and thrust an automatic pistol against his chin. Hans up, my friend, he said gently. Up high or someone will fire another shot you shall never hear. So. Now I search the other pocket. So. No packet. Bah. Not in the pants either. Ah, bah. But wait. Jens, what is this you hide inside your shirt? I was joking, gasped Leverett. 
I was just a-going to give it to you. Is that my packet? Yes, it was all in fun. I was going to steal it. Quintana unbuttoned the gray wool shirt, thrust in his hand, and drew forth the packet for which Jake Clune had died within the hour. Suddenly Leverett's knees gave way, and he dropped to the ground, groveling at Quintana's feet in an agony of fright. "'Don't hurt me!' he screamed. "'I didn't mean no harm. Jake, he wanted me to steal it. I told him I was honest. I fired a shot to scare him, and he took it and I run off. I wasn't going to steal it from you. So help me God. I was looking for you. As God is my witness.' He got Quintana by one fit. Quintana kicked him aside and backed away. Swine, he said, calmly inspecting the whimpering creature who had started to crawl toward him. He hesitated, lifting his automatic, then, as though annoyed by Leverett's deafening shriek, shrugged, hesitated, pocketed both pistol and packet, and turned on his heel. By the birch sapling he paused and picked up Leverett's rifle. Something left a red smear on his palm as he worked the ejector. It was blood. Quintana gazed curiously at his soiled hand. Then he stooped, picked up the empty cartridge casing, which had been ejected, and as he stooped he noticed more blood on a fallen leaf. With one foot daintily, as a game cock scratches, he brushed away fallen leaves, revealing the mess underneath. After he had contemplated the crimson traces of murder for a few moments, he turned and looked at Leverett with faint curiosity. So, he said, in his leisurely, emotionless way, you have fight with my friend Jake for the packet, yes? Very amusing. He shrugged his indifference, tossed the rifle to his shoulder, and without another glance at the cringing creature on the ground, walked away toward Drowned Alley unhurriedly. 3. When Quintana disappeared among the tamaracks, Leverett ventured to rise to his knees. As he crouched there, peering after Quintana, a man came swiftly out of the forest behind him and nearly stumbled over him. Recognition was instant and mutual as the man jerked the trapped robber to his feet, stifling the muffled yell in his throat. "'I want that packet you picked up on Clinch's veranda,' said Hal Smith. "'My, my God,' stammered Leverett. "'Quintana just took it off me. He ain't been gone a minute.' "'You lie.' "'I ain't lying. Look at his footmarks there in the mud.' "'Quintana?' "'Yas, Quintana. He took my gun, too.' "'Which way?' whispered Smith fiercely, shaking Leverett till his jaws wagged. "'Drowned Valley. Lemon loose. I'm choking.' Smith pushed him aside. "'You rat,' he said. "'If you're lying to me, I'll come back and settle your affair. And Clunes too.' "'Quintana shot Jake and stuck him in a sinkhole,' snivelled Leverett, breaking down and sobbing. "'Oh, God, God. He's down under all that black mud with his brain spilled out.' But Smith was already gone, running lightly along the string of footprints that led straight away across slime and sphagnum toward the head of Drowned Valley. In the first clump of hardwood trees, Smith saw Quintana. He had halted, and he was fumbling at the twine which bound the flat, paper-wrapped packet. He did not start when Smith's sharp warning struck his ear. "'Don't move. I've got you over my rifle, Quintana.' Quintana's fingers had instantly ceased operation. Then... Warily, he lifted his head and looked into the muzzle of Smith's rifle. "'Ah, bah,' he said tranquilly. "'There were three of you, then. "'Lay that packet on the ground. "'My friend.' "'Drop it, or I'll drop you.' Quintana carefully placed the packet on a bed of vivid moss. "'Now your gun,' continued Smith. Quintana shrugged and laid Leverett's rifle beside the packet. 
"'Kneel down with your hands up and your back toward me,' said Smith. "'My friend!' "'Down with you!' Quintana dropped gracefully into the humiliating attitude popularly indicative of prayerful supplication. Smith walked slowly up behind him, relieved him of two automatics and a dirk. "'Stay put,' he said sharply as Quintana started to turn his head. Then he picked up the packet with its loosened strings, slipped it into his side pocket, gathered together the arsenal which had decorated Quintana, and so loaded with weapons walked away a few paces and seated himself on a fallen log. Here he pocketed both automatics, shoved the sheath dirk into his belt, placed the captured rifle handy after examining the magazine, and laid his own weapon across his knees. "'You may turn around now, Quintana,' he said amiably. Quintana lowered his arms and started to rise. "'Sit down,' said Smith. Quintana seated himself on the moss facing Smith. "'Now my gay and nimble thimble-rigger,' said Smith genially. "'While I take ten minutes' rest, we'll have a little polite conversation, or rather a monologue, because I don't want to hear anything from you.' He settled himself comfortably on the log. "'Let me assemble for you, Signor Quintana, the interesting history of the jewels which so sparklingly repose in the packet in my pocket. In the first place, as you know, Monsignor Quintana, the famous flaming jewel, and the other gems contained in this packet of mine, belong to Her Highness, the Grand Duchess Theodorica of Estonia. Very interesting. More interesting still. Along comes Don José Quintana and his celebrated gang of international thieves, and steals from the Grand Duchess of Estonia the flaming jewel and all her rubies, emeralds, and diamonds, yes? Certainly, said Quintana, with a polite inclination of acknowledgment. Bon. Well, then, still more interesting to relate. A gentleman named Clinch helps himself to these famous jewels. How very careless of you, Mr. Quintana. Careless, certainly, assented Quintana politely. Well, said Smith, laughing, Clinch was more careless still. The robber baron, Sir Jacob Clune, swiped, as Froissart has said, the Estonian gems, and, under agreement to deliver them to you, I suppose, thought better of it, and attempted to abscond. Do you get me, Herr Quintana? Gewiss. Yes, and you got Jake Clune, I hear, laughed Smith. No. Didn't you kill Clune? No. Oh, pardon, the mistake was natural. You merely robbed Clune and Leverett. You should have killed them. Yes, said Quintana slowly. I should have. It was my mistake. Signor Quintana, it is human for the human crook to err. Sooner or later he always does, and then the piper comes around, holding out two itching palms. Mr. Smith, said Quintana pleasantly, you are an unusually agreeable gentleman for a thief. You are an unusually agreeable gentleman for a thief. I regret that you do not see your way as an amalgamation of interests with myself. As you say, Quintana, may I am somewhat unusual. For example, what do you suppose I am going to do with this packet in my pocket? Live, replied Quintana tersely. Live, certainly, laughed Smith, but not on the proceeds of this coup de main. Non pas. I am going to return this packet to its rightful owner, the Grand Duchess Theodorica of Estonia. And what do you think of that, Quintana? Quintana smiled. You do not believe me, inquired Smith. Quintana smiled again. Allons bon, exclaimed Smith, rising. It's the unusual that happens in life, my dear Quintana. Now we'll take a little inventory of these marvelous gems before we part. Sit very, very still, Quintana, unless you want to lie still or still. I'll let you take a modest peep at the flaming jewel. 
busily unwrapping the packet. Just one little peep, Quintana. He unwrapped the paper. Two cakes of sugar-milk chocolate lay within. Quintana turned white, then deeply, heavily red. Then he smiled in a ghastly fashion. Yes, he said hoarsely. As you have just said, sir, it is usually the unusual which happens in the world. End of Episode 5